And welcome to Texting Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp, and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes lost time and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you missed any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading... There is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Taxing Matters regular listeners will recall from our previous episodes on judicial review the importance of this form of challenge, described as the last bastion of the citizen against the government. As some of you may be aware, in July 2020, the government announced that it was launching an independent panel to conduct a review of how judicial reviews operate. To explain what this means both for the future of judicial reviews and for your businesses, we're joined by Simon Hanif. Saima recently elevated to Silk and now boasts the title of Saima Hanif, Queen's Counsel. She's a barrister at 3VB, where she has a practice spanning banking, financial services, commercial litigation, insurance, and, significantly for our purposes, judicial review. Her judicial review experience is unparalleled. Having acted in one of the few successful judicial reviews of a decision made by the FCA, and as you would expect, she's described in exclusively glowing terms. Fantastic litigator, technically gifted, excellent judgment, persuasive before any forum, the list goes on. She's also been productively using her pandemic time to become familiar with every single box set on Amazon Prime. Soma, welcome to Taxi Matters. Thank you for that, Alison. Nice to be here. So I mentioned the independent review. What exactly is it? So as you said, Alice, in July 2020, the government launched a review into administrative law. Now, that in itself is a hugely wide-ranging definition. So essentially what they've done is they've issued a series of questions which purport to cover every aspect of judicial review you could think about. So it starts by looking at the substantive issues underlying judicial review, namely, what are the sorts of grounds upon which a claimant should be able to bring a judicial review? What sorts of areas should a claimant be able to challenge? It then moves into procedural issues, such as standing, namely the ability to sue, time limits, and then it moves into remedies and asks a number of questions around that. So it's an incredibly extensive and broad inquiry into what looks like the whole gamut of administrative law. Um, In addition to launching the inquiry, they issued terms of reference and they set out in a bit more detail uh, the specific issues that the panel would be looking at. Um, And in addition to that, there's been a specific call for evidence. So various experts in judicial review or law firms, academics... Um, have provided consultation responses to this review, which the government is currently considering. So what has brought this review about? So that's a very good question, Alice. So before I actually answer your question specifically, it might be useful if we just cast our minds back to 2019 and just refresh ourselves as to the chronology. And then the listener, indeed yourself, can draw your own conclusions. (laughs) So as you might recall, Alice, in October 2019, we had the landmark decision of the Supreme Court in which the court unanimously ruled 
that the prorogation of parliament was unlawful. Um, obviously, that was a huge decision at the time. It got huge amounts of press attention. And I think in some ways, actually, what I thought was interesting about it, I found for the first time, lay people who may ordinarily not have had any interest in court decisions, they were actually interested in this and you could hear people talking about it. So that's October 2019. Um, we move forward two months uh, to November 2019. And that's when the Tory party launched their manifesto in anticipation of the election that was to take place in December 2019. And interestingly in that manifesto, um, there was mention about the government wanting a review of the relationship between the government, the parliament and the court. Now, some of us may say that that was directly linked to the outcome of the Supreme Court decision, or one may say I'm being cynical, but I leave you to draw the facts that you wish to draw. So it was a manifesto which embedded the position of the Tory party. And interestingly, they said within that manifesto that they wanted to update administrative law to ensure that there was a proper balance uh, between the citizen challenging it and the need for effective decision-making. So that was a catalyst. Then we fast forward to July 2020, where the government actually officially launched the review. Evidence has been submitted by various parties. Um, at the end of last year, Robert Buckland reported back to Parliament that the panel was in its final phase. Um, he said that the hope was that they would report back to Parliament in spring 2021. But he was candid enough to say that that's a speculation. So at the moment, Alice, there's no defined timetable as to when they will report back. Um, but the hope is it will be in the course of this year. So that's an interesting series of breadcrumbs that you've drawn out for us. So what exactly are the government's concerns that this review is proposing to address? I mean, again, that's an excellent question. So I think I'd probably start by saying, if we step back and take a first principles approach, um, it's actually quite a good thing to say, look, let's have a review of the constitutional system within this country. Let's examine how it functions and let's examine how we can make it function better. So at a high level view, there is in theory a good aim and objective behind this. And in particular, if one thinks about the use of the royal prerogative, there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty in terms of what does that mean? What is its scope? So it's no bad thing, actually, to want to look at something like that in more detail. However, if you look at the manifesto itself and then the actual terms of reference which accompanied uh, the launch of this review, what you see is a subtext in terms of what is actually really concerning the government. And it's interesting the language that they've used actually within both the manifesto and the terms of reference. And I just want to give you um, a few examples. So... As part of the manifesto, the Tory party said that it wanted to ensure that judicial review was not abused to conduct politics by another means or to create endless delays. Um, there's other language that's used within the terms of reference. So, for example, if we turn to standing, which is one of the procedural issues, and namely who has a right to sue, the question says, you know, are the rules around standing treated too leniently by the courts? Um, there's also this language about wanting to strike a balance between the right of citizens to challenge executive decisions and the need for effective and efficient government. And then it goes on elsewhere to say that citizens should be guaranteed a right to challenge overbearing decisions. 
there's almost this view, Alice, that some of those statements are, as lawyers, we would say they're leading, actually. So let's take the question around standing. Rather than saying, are the courts treating the rules too leniently? If you're approaching this neutrally, you would say, what are the rules of standing? Could they be improved in any way? So there's something inherent in the language which suggests that in the subconscious of the draftsman, there's almost this tension, as they see it, between what government wants to do and what they see as the court, primarily through the vehicle of judicial review, as preventing them from wanting to do these things. Um, so I would say, what are the government's concerns? Well, it seems to me, if you look at the language they've used, and if you look at the chronology uh, against which the review was first launched, clearly their sort of underlying concern is that effectively this process of judicial review is hampering or impeding their ability as a government to do what they wish to do. And from your perspective, looking on as a legal practitioner in this area, do you think that these concerns are valid? Have the government got a point or is this very much a politically charged issue based on the breadcrumbs that you've told us about? I mean, again, this is another really insightful question, Alice. I mean, it's the sort of thing we could sit around and debate all day. I mean, it won't surprise you to know that different people have different views on your very question. Um, I think my view, looking at this purely as a barrister and from the narrow perspective of a practitioner, my view is this. If you're concerned about something, you approach it in a neutral, data-driven way. And my only concern is, if you look at the way this has come about, I'm not sufficiently satisfied that this has been approached in a neutral, data-driven way. So, for example, although the terms of reference raise various questions as to potential concerns, such as the rules on standing too, uh, too lenient or the concern in the manifesto that judicial reviews are leading to endless delay, my question would be, well, look, what's the starting point? Where is the data that gives rise to that question? So what I would have expected to see is something within the review which would have said, well, look, very informally, we've looked at the court data, we've looked at these statistics, we've gone out informally to the marketplace, and it's clear that there are, quote, unquote, endless delays. Um, the absence of what I would call that reliable empirical data, to my mind, does bring to the fore the very good question that you have asked, which is, actually, all things said and done, is this really politically motivated? Um, the other thing that gives me slight cause for concern is the huge expanse of this inquiry. I mean, it's seeking to review the entire A to Z of administrative law. Um, as you know, we have the Law Commission, which will look substantively at areas of law which are in need of reform or somehow are in need of an update. And interestingly, in respect of judicial review, that's one of the areas where the Law Commission has effectively said that if we're going to look at it substantively, it needs to be done properly with a properly qualified panel. And interestingly, the Law Commission is effectively saying, well, look, the Law Commission itself may not be the best organisation to do that. And with the greatest respect to the panel, which has been set up by the government, which admittedly has a huge breadth of expertise on it, there's a real question mark as to whether that panel is properly resourced and properly equipped to carry out an inquiry of this size and this, and this expansiveness, which again returns to the point, 
if you actually had a genuine desire to approach this objectively, to look at it just intellectually, and just to look at it in a detached way, would you do it this way? Um, and my view is, I'm not sure. Given that this review is underway, what are the flavour of the submissions that are coming out of the legal profession? What are the concerns? What comments are being made? Absolutely. So as you pointed out, there was a call for evidence and that closed in October last year. And there have been a range of submissions made by law firms, barristers, academics. There have been specialist bar associations like the Administrative Law Bar Association, which has also submitted a response. And I think it's fair to say this, at an abstract level, the responses accept and quite rightly say that actually there's nothing wrong with doing a review of judicial review or administrative law. And actually we've all got a vested interest in making sure that the system functions properly and functions well. And therefore it's good to look at these things so I think at that broad high level, there's certainly no resistance to an inquiry of this kind, quite the opposite. However, you do see recurrent themes in the, in the consultation responses. And interestingly, I would say one theme that comes across quite strongly at a practical level is actually the scope of what's been considered is too big to be done properly in the short time available. So if you just think of the timeline, end of July, they launch it. I mean, so realistically, that's the 1st of August. It really gets underway. They've asked for the consultation responses to be in by the end of October. That's three months, essentially. Um, the original expectation was the government would report back end of 2020. Obviously, that's not happened. We're now being told possibly spring 2021. But on any view, it's a really truncated timetable so the first concern actually is, is it even possible to do an inquiry of this size justice in the short time available? Um, secondly, there have been concerns expressed about the panel itself, not of any individuals. And I really want to emphasize that all the individuals are incredibly, um, they're, they're huge experts in their field. But a general concern that actually, if you're going to do a, a sort of belts and braces review of the fundamentals of judicial review, looking at it substantially as an area of law, um, maybe there needed to be a different sort of panel. So that's the second generic concern that I think you do see in the responses. Um, the third concern, and I think it is right to highlight this actually, that there is a concern that the way the terms of reference have been phrased are not necessarily conducive to, as it were, a neutral and open and effective debate of the issues. And one point I've seen actually seen in repeated consultations is that by using this language that the government has used, namely that it recognises that judicial review is a useful tool when there's an overbearing government, but that actually it thinks there needs to be a balance between effective and efficient government and the rights of citizens to challenge it. It's almost as if the government seems to be saying, well, actually, you can, efficiency may in some cases trump the need to do something lawfully. Now, if you go back to the way our constitutional system works, and in particular the rule of law, 
and whether they're whether they're academics or practitioners, they will tell you the rule of law is a sacrosanct touchstone of our judicial, of our legal and judicial system. And the point is, rule of law trumps all else. You can't depart from it and justify it by saying, oh, well, look, this is a this is effective and efficient government decision making. That's that 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 sort of language and that uh, conceptualization doesn't exist. But there's a real concern, actually, amongst the consultation uh, responses that by positing this the, the concept in this way, it's almost as if the government itself is implicitly saying, actually, we think you can fashion out a case for departing from the rule of law where it's efficient, uh, decision, efficient government decision making. Um, so I think that concern about this perceived tension on the part of the government has definitely come through. Another concern I think that's definitely coming through all the responses is that what nobody supports quite rightly is that if the purpose of these reforms is somehow to weaken or otherwise hamper the ability of the courts to effectively scrutinise the lawfulness of government decision-making, then the responses have said quite clearly they are not in favour and are not going to support reforms of that nature. And all the responses have highlighted how crucial it is to the separation of powers that the courts in this country are able to scrutinise government decision-making and are able to call it out as being unlawful if on the facts of the case and the applicable legal framework, that's exactly what has happened. So I think very reassuringly, it's really good to see that sort of strong, robust position from the consultation responses, because hopefully it pushes back against some of the rather unhelpful language that one sees within the terms of reference. So I guess the next question is, from a business point of view, why should they care? What is this to them? Yeah, absolutely, Alice. And I think that is absolutely the way to look at this, because I think ultimately courts and legal principles, they shouldn't exist in an abstract vacuum. They, they are there to affect and facilitate the lives of businesses and individuals. So I think that's an excellent question, Alice. And I'd answer it in two parts. So firstly, there's a slightly high level principle. And I think it's this, that society as a whole functions best when there is a mechanism to challenge and scrutinize government decision-making. Um, it's naive and infantile to assume that government always knows best or that the government always acts lawfully. Um, we know that's not the case. And what we also know is where you have instances of governments either acting unlawfully or public bodies acting in a way which, contrary to what they may assume, is not in the best interest of that particular situation, the damage it can cause not just to the affected individual, but to society at large, actually is huge. And therefore, it's absolutely vital that there is a mechanism that citizens can use to challenge it. Um, and there have been recent cases, I think, which are currently in, the, in the, the public domain, which illustrate why we absolutely need this mechanism there. So let's look at COVID, let's look at current situation around COVID. Um, it's an emergency situation. We all accept that. And emergency situations sometimes require difficult responses. We also accept that too. But does that mean that effectively governments can be excused from acting within the law? No, it does not. 
But what we have seen, for example, with the manner in which this government has entered into contracts around the provision of PPE, um, it's raised huge questions, A, about whether the process was fair, but more importantly, have the government favoured business A over business B just because business A happens to have a personal connection to various bodies within Westminster? And that, to me, illustrates why businesses should be absolutely concerned about these reforms, because whether we like it or not, as I say, governments do sometimes act unfairly, and we're seeing it play out in the world around us as we speak. And it's vital that citizens can challenge this in the most effective means possible. The second point I want to make is that I think rule of law is at the heart of any democratic society. No government should be able to justify departing from the law just because it's efficient. And the moment you go down that road, it's a slippery slope to other situations which I think would be highly unsatisfactory. And this isn't to be alarmist in any sense or to scaremonger, but it's just to illustrate to businesses that we live in a world now where there is, and I think for, in some cases for good, actually, there's huge amounts of government intervention and regulation. I mean, I fully appreciate that businesses sometimes refer to it as red tape, but actually there's often a need for that sort of thing. But the point is that if businesses, if governments are going to interfere with the way that businesses carry out their day-to-day -day activities, or if it's going to prevent or require businesses to act in certain ways, it should only do so if on the converse, there is a right for that business to challenge that action and that intervention if it feels aggrieved by it. So we've got this review. Where is it going? Where are we going to end up? It's an e excellent question. And I think... In a sense, the question's really difficult to answer because of the way that this has come about. So, you know, we had the prorogation decision in October. And the Tory party then issued the manifesto um, and they use this language of updating administrative law. I mean, it, it, it's not even clear to me what the draftsmen had in mind at the time when they wrote that manifesto. We've obviously then now had the terms of reference. Um, I think at this stage, it's, it's very unclear. And I think for two reasons. Firstly, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they respond to the consultation responses, especially given the high degree of concern that a number of the consultation responses have expressed. Um, also, I think there's an issue here about timing, actually. Now, bearing in mind, we're now in the throes of Brexit, which from a legal perspective is itself a huge conundrum. You know, I would query whether in addition to that, a government can also carry out a root, root and branches review of administrative law. Um, initially, the thought process was, well, are they going to bring in new legislation actually to somehow modify or update um, judicial review? Currently, that seems unlikely. So I still think there's a long way to go. And I suspect even spring 2021, which is the timetable that Robert Buckland referred to, um, I mean, he referred to it as speculative, which I sort of read as an admission on his part that he's giving a date because he has to give a date because it's, he's saying this in a public meeting. But even he doesn't believe that spring 2020 is going to happen. So my best guess is in the latter end of this year, 
at some stage will will receive the panel's response to what the consultees have said. Um, And I would guess that actually there will then have to be a further round of discussion, actually, i.e. they won't go straight into implementing uh, what recommendations, whatever they may be. So I think there's still a long way to go. Whether we like it or not, I do think there is a strand or maybe a greater strand of of politicisation behind the review. So I think a lot of what will happen depends on the political dynamics within the Tory party, to be frank. If the consultation was going to come out with a recommendation that in any way limited the court's power and limited the rights of people to access it, how likely do you think it is that the court would uh, develop its inherent jurisdiction in order to avoid that? Gosh, I mean, it's a... It's a huge question. I mean, genuinely a really, uh, really fantastic and profound question. Um, if they sought to limit it, gosh, I mean, firstly, you know, the question is how they're going to do it. If they're going to do it by the legislative parliamentary process, it'll have to go through a specific process where it would have to be debated both within the Commons and the Lords. As you know, there are a number of law lords that sit in the House of Lords, a number of whom are actually in their former lives were administrative and public lawyers. So no doubt they would have huge amounts of uh, um, comments to contribute to this debate. So the first thing it would have to pass into our legislation, as you say, what would that what would then happen when you get a particular case and that legislation somehow has to come into force? Um, I think it's really difficult to say, Alice. And I think at this stage, it would be both premature of me to sort of shoot from the hip. And also, I think it's too profound an issue for me to do so without researching properly. But you have, in some ways, you have highlighted and I think hit the nail on the head as to why this is actually such a hugely significant review and why, in my view, whatever happens next, the panel would um, would do well to proceed cautiously. So thank you very much for that. Now, just as a final thought, is there any top tips that you would give for businesses watching this space? So absolutely, Alice. I mean, the difficulty, I think, with this particular exercise is obviously it started last year as a slightly abstruse, high-level sort of intellectual exercise, and it's still very much in its infancy. So I think, firstly, businesses will have to wait and see how the panel responds to the consultation responses that have gone in. Um, And what we'll have to see is what, if any, recommendations the panel then makes to come out of this exercise I mean, one thing we may see is if this proceeds in in a way that it ought to, namely there's an evidence gathering process, what might be, what could be quite useful exercises to gather data in terms of um, what, what, for example, is a lead time between a claim for judicial review being filed, between it then being determined on the papers, and if permission is given to it then being determined substantively, So if, for example, it's felt like within the court process itself, um, the cases are proceeding too slowly, what that might prompt is, as as it were, a review of the internal mechanisms within the court. And we may find people asking themselves, well, look, is there a better way to do this functionally within the courts? And obviously, as we're now living in a world where you have um, video link court hearings, it may be that there's greater use of IT and that sort of technology to, as it were, speed along the mecha- the mechanics of lodging claims and getting them through the court system. And that would be no bad thing, because I think no party, whether it's a claimant or a defendant, uh, wants a claim to hang around. All parties want the case to be determined as promptly as possible. 
So it may well be that it might, it might create some very helpful and sort of practical reforms in that sense. Thank you very much, Simon, for taking us through the proposed reforms to judicial reviews. A full transcript of this episode, together with our references, can be found on our website, www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. And you can find Saima on her chamber's website, 3VB, or through LinkedIn, Saima Hanif QC. If you have any questions for me or for Saima, or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. As ever, a big thank you goes to Josh McDonald, who does all of the work pulling each episode together. Our music is from musical genius Andrew Waterson, who also produces each episode. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. A full transcript of this episode, together with our references, can be found on our website, www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. If you like taxing matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe, and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening, and talk to you again in two weeks. Thank you.